Is data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. It is exciting to be back, season two, and we have a special guest, an old friend, but also a new colleague in a way, Alan Stein. Welcome. Oh, it's so great to be with you guys. But you need to clarify, when you say old friend, are you talking about my age? Or are you talking about how long you and I have known each other? Well, we'll go with B because, my man, right. you look pretty good right now, and I <laughs> wish I could say the same. So, Courtney, Andrew, welcome back. Thanks a lot. Fantastic. When I say Alan's a new colleague, I mean it in this way. One of the little side stories of of the Data Reveal podcast is it's actually a passion play I was writing a book for 25 years, so I consider any successful author a colleague of mine until I actually write a book. And so I have a lot of uh, respect for the fact that you've done not just one, but two. Congratulations on the release of Sustain Your Game. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, It's been a fun process and, as you know, a, a long and arduous process, but I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. And, you know, for me, I'm always trying to write a book that mirrors what I'm going through in my own life at that time. And so in essence, I'm, I'm writing the book that I need to read myself. Mm. Uh, I actually find it somewhat therapeutic to do that. You know, if I'm looking to improve an area of my life, the best thing I can do is, is heavily research it and fully immerse myself in it and write something that will be of value to serve others. But at the same time, it's like holding a mirror up to myself because it, it, it helps me a lot. That's fantastic. And and on that, we'll just dive in because and anyone that knows sort of our podcast, it's very intentionally, we're trying to be authentic about the human experience of working in data and government. And yet you have like, you know, politics and organizational muscle movements and budgets and things that people feel like can't be improved. So whenever we're talking about improving yourself and then improving an organization, the idea of change management can run into one of the big themes of your book, stagnation, or feeling like you can't right, kind of get past a point. So if this is a therapeutic episode for, for us and listeners, it will simply inject some hope and, and, and energy in that feeling like I can make a difference, not just for myself, definitely for yourself, but in, in the organization that you're in. So we'll, we'll measure ourselves by our audience feedback. And if they say, hey, we took this away and, and did some things and made, made improvements where we work, that's huge. And certainly personal improvement. I don't want to say that's a layup because it takes hard work, but just being around you for five minutes, I feel like I'm personally improved. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm all in for that. I mean, my only goal to be with you guys today is to add as much value to you and your listeners as I can. And, and, and to kind of piggyback with what you just said, I've, I've always believed hope is a choice. Uh, optimism mm. is a choice. You know, positivity is a choice. Now, I do think depending on our, our natural wiring and how we were raised. For some people, those are much easier choices to make, but ultimately they're a choice for everyone. And, and I certainly hope that uh, anything that we discuss today and anything that I share at large helps improve those qualities for people to make them feel more hopeful, more optimistic, uh, more positive, but most importantly, reminding them that they have the power to change more than they most likely believe they do. And hmm. uh, they've got the keys to the car and and, and yeah, that's what I think will tee up a wonderful conversation today. That's great. So I'll kick this out. And, and that's this is one I know will produce some group discussion, but you describe yourself as a coach. And 
when we played basketball at Watkinsville High School, I was a senior. This was 1993. You were a junior. We went one round short of like the Maryland State Finals, which would have been like the Maryland Final Four in our division. And you were a coach on the floor. And it's like a presence that some people have. Can you just talk about like what it means for you to be a coach, what it means now that you've said you've reinvented yourself as sort of a motivational speaker, and even more than that, I remember when you were young, you seemed to have a presence, almost like an it factor, but you're also saying important for our listeners, like if it's a choice, it's not just people are born with leadership talent. Obviously, we all have some. How have you cultivated like what you had when I first was, you know, we were sweating, running up and down the floor together. And now here you are and you've had some amazing stops in between, which we'll talk about, like what carries you on and how have you practiced what you preach? Well, I'm incredibly grateful for your praise. I appreciate that very much. I mean, I, I do remember at a very early age, at least having a natural affinity for the ability to communicate and to articulate my thoughts and messages to other people. So I, I, I feel like I've always been somewhat aligned with that. If you were to ask me to list synonyms to the word coach, uh, one of those synonyms mm-hmm. would be teacher. Uh, and both of my parents were elementary educators for 30 years. So I, had, at a very early age, had modeled for me the importance of teaching and directing and training and coaching and communicating and pouring into others, being of service to others. You know, at, at its core, I believe a coach's job is to help people achieve something that they don't believe they could achieve on their own. And, you know, being somewhat of kind of the, the conductor of the orchestra, you know, getting each and every person to play their own beautiful music. But when done together, you've got something really special. So I think that seed was planted very early for me. Of course, like many young basketball players, uh, my goal was to play the game for as long as I could. And and I realized that for me, that was playing at Elon. Uh, it was Elon College down in North Carolina. It's now Elon University. But it was crystal clear to me that once I graduated from Elon, no one was going to pay my bills to put a ball in a basket. <laughs> so I, I had to find something else. And that was when I decided to get into coaching, more specifically performance coaching, because that was a newfound love of mine. But even prior to coming to Watkins Mill and meeting you when I was in middle school, uh, I had a coach give me a piece of advice that I still to this day consider the best advice I've ever been given. Mm. And that is find something you love to do, find something you're naturally pretty good at, and then find where those two things intersect. So basically find where your passion and your talent intersects. And he said, that's your strength zone. And the more time you can invest in your skills in your strength zone, not only will you perform at a higher level, but you'll also have much higher levels of fulfillment as well. You'll enjoy it a lot more when you're in your strength zone. And, and I've stayed true to that for my entire life. And, and as I said, for the first part of my life, that intersection was as a basketball player. The next portion of my life, that intersection was as a basketball performance coach. And now in this current iteration, it is as a, a corporate keynote speaker and author, but it still has those same two ingredients, mm-hmm. doing something I'm passionate about, and something I believe I, I have some gifts uh, and talent towards. And it's about actualizing those and investing in those and working to make those strengths even stronger. So all of that is, I think, is what what's kind of led me to where I am at present. And, and yes, I do very much consider myself a coach. I got a question for you. And I, I think this would be a theme that we can pull back into through most of this conversation is, what's a coach? I mean, I've taken training here at Click on coaching very different than being the boss or even being the leader. So I'm curious when you talk about being a coach, what what is it what does that mean to you? Before you answer that, can I add on to that really quickly because I had a similar question 
But I was listening this weekend to a interview with Sundar Puchai, um, the CEO of Alphabet and Google, and he will describe himself as not a natural born CEO, particularly for one of the biggest companies in the entire world. So similar to what Andrew's asking, like, what, what do you feel like that coach description is in your mind? The first thought that comes to mind is, is, is being a servant, servant leadership it is doing everything in your power to live out the mantra of transformational leadership, which is, it's not about me. It's about you. That it, it's not just about, you know, what are my goals and my dreams and my hopes, but I want to learn what are your goals and your dreams and your hopes. And then how can I best uh, empower you, encourage you, support you, assist you, guide you, pull you, push you so that you can reach those things. And and that's, to me, that's the epicenter of being a coach. Um, I do look, you know, as we, we talk about kind of synonyms, I said one synonym would be teacher. I do look at it as another synonym as as being a leader. And I think you you started to allude to this, that this has nothing to do with being in charge. This has nothing to do with your title or being given a position of authority. It's all about you know, how you approach life and your perspective. And because I believe in any organization, uh, everyone has an opportunity to lead, to be a leader, even if you don't have that title or that position of authority, because being a leader is simply trying to influence others to improved behavior and improved results. And, and that's something else I consider very synonymous with, with coaching. I mean, it's really been interesting over, you know, the last decade or so that we see People doing, you know, like executive coaching and life coaching. And, you know, the word coach is now being brought into the mainstream. You know, Mark, when you and I were growing up, the coach was the guy with the whistle and the clipboard who, who was on a field or court. Yep. Those were the only coaches were those that were involved in athletics. But I think the business world in particular has wisened up and realized that this concept of coaching, of pouring into others, of lighting other people's candles does not mm -hmm. need to be relegated to just sport that this is actually helpful in all areas of life. And I, I know for me personally, I have a writing coach. I have a speaking coach. I call him my financial coach. He, he calls himself a financial advisor, but I still call him coach. Like for any area of my life that I'm looking to level up and make improvements, I've hired a coach that has an expertise in that area because I don't and I need them. And, and to me, that's, that's what a good coach can help provide. The heart of my question was this idea, and I, where I'll take this is around culture you know, organizational culture is it's very easy to be in a position of leadership and say, do this, this is the goal. Or to even do the thing yourself to say, ah, oh, get out of my way. Very different than to empower, enable people to do what they're uh, supposed to do in their role. And to me, like that, that, I think that there's a lot fewer people capable of doing that well than there are people, you know, <laughs> do this. <laughs> I think we're, we struggle with it a lot in, in all areas of companies like Click. Oh, no, I'm so glad you went in that direction. That's incredibly insightful. And it, it makes me think of a few more things. I mean, and these are mantras that I'm so thankful were implanted in me very early in my coaching career. And, you know, one of those is simply the model, the behavior you want to see in those that you lead. Basically, be the boss that you'd want to work for. Be the leader that you'd want to follow. So you need to model all of these behaviors. So it's not about telling people what to do. It's about living the life that you'd like to see them emulate. Along those same lines, you know, as a coach, I believe if you're going to expect it of the people that work for you or expect it of the people you lead, then you have to expect it of yourself. So one of the easiest ways to undermine your influence as, as a coach or a leader is kind of the do as I say, not as I do. You know, you do this because I said so. 
people aren't going to follow that for very long. That's not very sustainable. Uh, you might be able to get them to do that very short term because you've given position of authority uh, and because you can probably lead through fear. Like if you don't do what I say, you won't work here anymore. But that's not how you get the most out of people. And that's certainly not how you you run a thriving, sustainable type of culture that will get you the results in the long term. So it's all about modeling that behavior. But also, as we've seen recently, and, and Dr. Brene Brown has done a brilliant job of bringing this to the forefront, leaders also need to show some vulnerability. You know, I, I think, again, going back to since Mark opened this up by calling us both old, back in the day, you know, leaders were were supposed to be strong and have a strong face no matter what. And if they didn't know the answer, they'd just make it up. <laughs> and that no longer flies. I, I think the best leaders that I've ever been around have an authentic and appropriate vulnerability. And that if they're with their team and, and they don't know the answer, they'll acknowledge that. But they'll say, hey, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and be arm in arm with you until we find the answer. But they allow the human side of them to come out. And it's been my experience that actually increases your culture and that draws people in. It lets people know that, hey, we've all agreed this person is our leader, but they are human and they're fallible. And I have more respect for them when they make a mistake, they own it and they apologize for it than when they pretend that they don't make mistakes at all. So I I think the vulnerability piece is key. That's great. And this is kind of the, the part of the conversation where it could be easy what I'm about to say about generational change, which has been a big theme for us, Alan, to like point the fingers at the older if you're younger or the younger if you're older. But there's something about where we are post-pandemic that our team thinks a lot about, which is you have this federal workforce that we tend to spend a lot of time with. They're retiring. You have these digital natives coming in and they want something different. So what two of the things that you said, and, and this, you know, since we talk a lot about data, I'm going to bring it back to that, but but it's not intended to be nerdy, although I don't mind nerding out. You talked about modeling. And so if you model and then measure, you could use data to track progress. But I like what you said about vulnerability and honesty. You could use data to tell the ground truth, the ugly truth about where you're not performing. And so I think the magic of those of us in the in the data business is to keep the human side, the the coaching, the modeling, the behavior side, a little bit front and center and not like believing that data is going to automatically somehow get calculated by some pie in the sky genie and tell you, okay, here's the three things that change your performance. In your experience with the best of the best, you know, young people, you know, people proven in their careers, how do people use data to really get that edge and I'm, we're going to start to talk about that and then bring that back in a little bit. I'm just giving a preview to sort of the generational workforce, which is struggling with people who love data and then people who natively use it, but maybe don't think about it as much. So I want to start to think about how the best of the best use information to track their progress and even the ugly ground truth where maybe maybe they're not performing as well as they could. Oh, my goodness. There's so much gold in what you just shared there. I'm, I'm so glad we're going in this direction. A few thoughts immediately come to mind. One, and I believe this uh, across you know every industry that diversity is a great thing. You know, a, a lot mm-hmm. of times when we hear the word diversity, some people automatically think of uh, ethnicity, race, and, and certain things. But just you know, diversity of thought, uh, diversity of age, diversity of background. You know, I actually think you can make a team stronger when you have some of the digital natives and you have yeah. some of the baby boomers on the same team if everyone has an openness 
to learning what the other side believes and how the other side feels. And, 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 you know, one of the sad things I think that has been exponentially heightened over the last two years with the global pandemic is how divided our country has become on so many different issues. I mean, red and blue, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's, there's so many different things that have, have divided us. And I think we need to get back to having a respect and appreciation and a curiosity about what someone else believes when it's different Mm -hmm. than yours, you know? So here's how I approach it. Anytime I meet someone who may believe something vastly different than I do, the very first thing I do is say, okay, first of all, if I'm entitled to my own beliefs and opinions, then they are as well. And, And if I want them to respect my beliefs and opinions, I need to lead by respecting theirs. That goes back to modeling that behavior. Nice. Uh, The second thing is, is I lean in with curiosity and fascination. I go, okay, you know, here's my buddy, Mark. We're both relatively informed, intelligent people. And yet for some reason, Mark and I see this one, this one situation completely differently. I'm curious on how that is. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that he could see the world so differently than I do. And I want to learn more about why. Now, it's been my experience that, that we all see the world through a very biased lens based on our age, our ethnicity, where we grew up, how we were raised, like all of these things have shaped, you know, our perspective on life, you know, what we read, watch and listen to, who we insulate ourselves with, where we work, what type of work we're in. Mm-hmm. So I have to recognize that if all of these things have given me a biased perspective, those things will give someone else a biased perspective. And, and what I choose to do is the, to the best of my ability with minimal exception is try not to look at things as right or wrong or good or bad, but instead just look at them with a much more open mind and saying, is this the right fit? So if you share a perspective on any area of life and I immediately shut it down as you're wrong, well, that means I have to be right. You have to be wrong in order for me to be right. And that's yeah. not going to get us anywhere. Instead, say, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, let's discuss it and let's have a conversation and let's see if we can both, this is not about trying to change anybody's mind, but can we both share our perspective more openly where we can each pull from the others and come up with something you know, that collectively will benefit us all and, and, and teams and organizations yeah. that have those types of open and honest, curious, authentic conversations are the ones that, that actually make progress. So the older generation you know, needs to say, hey, these younger folks that have grown up on social media with technology, what can we learn from them? What is it about their perspective that's refreshing and new that we can adopt? But then the younger generation has to have that same respect and say, hey, you know, we can't keep telling them your way doesn't work anymore because there are certain fundamental principles that have been around for longer than I've been around that are still tried and true. So how can we kind of all work together? And when you can do that, then you've got something really special. And that's, you know, a diverse culture is incredibly important. And uh, I've got one story, and yeah. I know this was a mouthful, that I, no, that I, I really hope kind of ties in what you teed up so brilliantly about you've got the data side, you've got the human side, and how can we, we mix these things together? And to no surprise, based on my background, this is a basketball story. One of the best groups that I've ever had a chance to work with is Queens University's men's basketball team in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And they have one of the top Division II basketball programs in the United States. Uh, They've averaged 30 wins per season the last six years, and they regularly make the Final Four in the Elite Eight in Division II. Last year's team had seven players that went on to play professionally overseas. So they're really remarkable for a Division II program. And former coach Bart Lundy, as of a couple of months ago, he took a job with the Division I program. 
But Coach Lundy and his staff figured out that there were four key stats that heavily influenced whether or not Queens University would win the basketball game. And obviously in the game of basketball, it's a very finite game. You know, the team with the most points on the scoreboard when the the final buzzer goes off is the winner. But he figured out there were four key stats that would increase the chance of them having the most points. The first was turnover differential. If we could have more possessions than our opponent, gives us a better chance to win. Uh, Second was offensive rebound differential. If we could take more shots than our opponent, gives us a better chance to win. Third was free throws attempted. The free throw is the highest percentage shot per possession in the game of basketball. If we can take more of those than our opponent, gives us a better chance to win. And fourth was three-pointers attempted. The three-pointer is a massive weapon in college basketball. And if we can take more clean looks from three than our opponent, it gives us a better chance to win. Well, Coach Lundy figured out that when Queens University would come out on top in those four statistical categories, they won 96% of their games. Wow. Which means statistically, they were almost unbeatable. Wow. And the reason I share that, and I know this will be a rhetorical question because we can't hear your listeners at at present, (laughs) but what I would ask them is, what do you think Coach Lundy and his staff talked about, emphasized, and reinforced at every practice, every workout, every film session, and before every game? It was those four things. Yeah. What do you think he used to design every workout, every practice, every mm. film session, and every game plan? It was those four things. See, Coach Lundy and his staff never mm. talked about winning. They never talked about championships. They never talked about trophies, and they never talked about banners. The only thing they talked about were those four things. Because if they did those four things, the winning, the trophies, the championships, and the banners would just take care of themselves. So that was a perfect example of how they would take the data and those key statistics blend that with the human effect of the coaching and the leadership and the modeling with their team. And the result, the byproduct is one of the most successful basketball programs in in the country. It sounds like a pretty big promotion for Coach Lundy, which is, sounds like well-deserved. And so for Courtney and Andrew, I think this is a huge jumping off point for us. We've talked about this a little bit, but leading indicators of success. Alan, you said it's a choice, right? Like at the beginning, happiness, joy, enthusiasm, choices, yes. what you emphasize, what you measure, whether you design your practices randomly or according to what makes the biggest difference. So that's really where I think organizational performance and individual performance come together because a leader is the one who can model what you just said, right? Like being honest enough, vulnerable enough to, to admit that just like, I don't know, your past experience before you do any data collection was good enough. You do the data collection, you find out these four things. Clearly, they had to invest. So investment is a choice. And getting these these sort of specifics, it just, it's logical, right? More shots, more chances, more chances on easy shots, more chances on, you know, a, a premium shot, the three, my favorite shot. <laughs> the question now is, what From your experience, I want to pivot a little bit to some of the things that I loved from your book, which is, you know, managing stress, what we call business moments or moments of sort of having to perform. When you have this sort of clean view of what you want to measure and what you want to do, so you, you get to that point. And I'm sure a lot of organizations and our listeners know what drives them, what stirs their drink. Now, how do you bring that into moments when others don't see it that way? And you're under the stress of, you know, 
it's not always as fluid as winning and losing. Sometimes it's like you're in a meeting or like the long term, the short term and the medium term you talk about in your book. So what have you learned from the best of the best about stress? Let's just talk about stress for a little bit. Like, sure. you know, the goal you want to get to your stats, you want to or you want to get to your, your leading indicators and, and, and work towards them. You figure it out. Now you're you're personally working to be that example. You talk about settled mind. I, I circled that on my notes. Like once you settle that this is what I'm going to be about, how do you, do you meditate or do you do mindfulness activities? Do you recommend those sorts of things? Do you recommend those things for business or is that weird? Like how do you, what are your, what's your take on settled mind? One of the biggest epiphanal moments I've ever had, and this was kind of what led to writing Sustain Your Game, was finally coming to the realization. And we, you talked about some things that are choices. Optimism is a choice, hope preparation, enthusiasm. I agree completely. But now what I'll add, and this may sound like somewhat of a controversial statement, it might raise some eyebrows, but I fully believe that stress is actually a choice. Mm. And the reason I believe that is for, you know, I'm 46 years old. So for 43 of those years, I always believed that stress was caused by outside influences, by circumstances, by events, by what people say, by what people do. And I came to the realization that that's not what causes the stress. The stress is my perception of those things. It's how I process those things. It's my perspective of those things. But most importantly, stress comes from my resistance to those things. Mm. So trying to resist what is going on in the world is completely futile, you know, as we all know that. I mean, think about something that stressed you out. No matter how much you worried about it, that didn't change it. No matter how angry you got about it, that in and of itself doesn't change it. Now, those emotions can lead to some different behaviors that might put you on the right path. Um, but resisting what is, is not going to improve your situation. So on some level, learning to have acceptance and a surrendering to things outside of your control. Now, just so you guys don't think I live in a fantasy land or I've lost my marbles, <laughs> I'm not saying that what goes on in the world is to your liking. I'm not saying it's your preference. I'm not even saying that some of the things that go on in the world are inherently good. What I'm saying is you don't have any control over them and resisting them is what increases your stress. Mm -hmm. Learning to have an acceptance that the world is just going to do what the world is going to do and put all of your focus into your response to those things. Now you'll get somewhere. And every human being on the planet feels these outside forces but the highest performers in the world have learned to have an acceptance of them and then channel their response, which then moves them forward and makes things better. So no one is immune to what's going on in the world, but we all have the option that, to, to drive and steer our car wherever we'd like to go moving forward. And that's the beginning of a settled mind is being at peace with the acceptance of, I don't control what's going on in the world. You know, and I say this with a huge smile because like I said, for, you know, 43 years, for some reason, I thought the world and the universe was supposed to magically align with all of my preferences, <laughs> that the universe was supposed to conspire to make me happy. And every time it didn't, whether that's a little bit of traffic or a slow cashier or losing a basketball game, I would get upset because things did not work out the way that I wanted them to. That's good. And then I just realized how comical that is that, you know, you've got 8 billion people on the earth who probably would prefer to have things go their way as well. And that's just not the way the world operates. So once mm -hmm. I decided to make the shift, and put all of my focus into how I respond to things. Now, these can be things that are my preference that I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for, or these could be some really hard, tragic, and, and you know, uh, trying adversities and challenges. 
either way, I get to choose my response. And that gives me a sense of empowerment. Like I find that incredibly liberating because I'm no longer at the mercy of what's going on in the world. I don't have to worry about it. All I have to focus on is my response. And now I will say I'm delivering that in a very matter of fact tone. I'm by no means implying that is easy. And I'm Mm -hmm. certainly not implying that I've mastered this. Nothing that I'm sharing with you guys today is coming from a place of mastery. These are all things that I'm still currently working on and wrestling with. But what I'm incredibly proud of is the progress I've made and the path that I'm on. I manage stress today so much better than I did two to three years ago. And it starts with that settled mind and a level of acceptance. It's great. Andrew and Mark are probably going to laugh at this reference, but I recently started Muay Thai, which is basically kickboxing. And aside from it being a way to manage stress, they make a point of the, you know, only like the theme from your book, only controlling what you can control by spending, you know, half of our time working specifically on defensive moves because you cannot control the punch or kick that your opponent is going to throw at you. You can only control how you react to it. Beautiful. Absolutely. And, and man, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and Mark, kind of to your point, things like the martial arts, I mean, those, those disciplines are yep. closely intertwined with this. Things like yoga and meditation, if done correctly and if practiced properly, they can lead to a much higher level of awareness and, and clarity. And if done correctly, live out these values, just like, just like yeah. she shared. And that's what I think is most important. So, but it's also, it's more about the, the lifestyle. You know, it's uh, same thing from fitness. Like I, I take a lot of pride in my own physical fitness and taking care of my body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like many people that started with kind of just, it was something to check off. Like, did I get in three workouts this week where each workout, you know, for 45, like, right. I've gotten away from that. Now it's much more of a holistic approach. It's great. Like every single day, you know, I don't have to go to the gym and do a prescribed workout for a certain number of repetitions. But every single day, I want to move my body in some capacity. Yeah. Every single day, I want to fuel myself with mostly healthy foods. I, I don't hold myself to a perfect standard. I think if I can eat pretty healthy stuff 80 to 85% of the time, the other 10 to 15%, you know, eat what I want to eat guilt-free, that's probably pretty decent. Uh, and then I have the same approach to my mind and my, my heart, you know, my, my mental and my emotional fitness. So it's much more of a lifestyle thing. And, and, and I learned that through meditation as well. When I first got into meditation, all that I cared about was just checking the box of, did I do a 10 minute guided meditation on headspace today? And I could (laughs) check it off. But then the rest of the day, I was neither mindful or aware. So it was kind of futile. Now, yes, I, I do headspace most mornings, but I try to find plenty of other times throughout the day where I can just sit in stillness, even if it's for three minutes, take a deep breath, kind of reground myself. So so now it's much more of a, a, I'm trying to live a mindful lifestyle, just like I'm trying to live a, a physically fit lifestyle. And it's not just something that can be compartmentalized and say, all right, I did headspace today for 10 minutes, but for the next 10 hours, I was a chaotic mess. Right. You know, yes, I did my workout this morning for 30 minutes. The rest of the day I laid on the, the couch and ate nachos. Those things aren't congruent. So I, I want to live a life of harmony where I'm doing these things as just part of who I am and, and who I'm striving to be. That's wonderful. Courtney, Andrew, thoughts? I know I always want to press into the habits that people have and talk about mine, which is very selfish, and I'm going to be try to be mindful. I will say I've been using mindfulness meditation 
less proactively recently, and I can tell the difference. And in times when I've been proactive, so one of my takeaways is I'm going to do some more meditating this week, at least as some take as some some things I can do to make the right choices. But Courtney, Andrew, like when we think about moments in business or moments when you know our customers are making choices. I actually think this is applicable too, right? Like you wouldn't say in a business meeting, all right, everybody, let's stop and be mindful right now. But there are little tricks, little hacks you could do like, okay, everyone, let's listen. Or before a meeting, hey, I just talked to this person, you know, maybe somebody everybody knows and just sort of de-stressing by choosing how you set up the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about meetings and like how we can apply this stuff in an organizational context. Because I think there's a leap that a lot of people that we that listen are okay, I'm in an organization, I, I could do these things for me personally, but how do I bring this to work? So that's a hard one. And I, I just, what, what do you guys think of when you think of mindfulness in meetings and, and calming down and settling people's minds when, when you're in a conversation? Uh, I, I mean, I think the capabilities that our products enable are at the center of, of this in a large organization. So at any given time, a government agency that we support, there is so much going wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is somebody who thinks you are the worst, that you have failed, that you have attempted to ruin their life. And, you know, a micro level, it, well, while not intentional, <laughs> that outcome may be true. But here's the thing. You talk about data and you're sitting there. I can only focus. There's only so many things that we can that mm-hmm. we can change. And what are what are those things that are core to our mission? And, you know, you take it down to a, a team that's approximately 30 people like ours. And it's just the same. There's all the small little problems that are, you know, nipping at our heels every single day. And those things will sort themselves out when you get right. You know, you've got to get right as a, as a team, as an organization. What does that mean? That means focus on the things that matter. And how do you do that? Sometimes it, data really helps. Like you're sitting there going, like, if I'm able to move this needle, many of these things will resolve themselves. I, we have to do a better job hiring and retaining our staff so we can keep up with uh, the workload. Suddenly, many of the customer complaints disappear. But in meetings, it's not allowing people, while well, they may have a personal item that's there, not allowing them to take over that conversation with this thing. And, and this is where it gets back to coaching. Like, it's easy for you as a leader to say, stop. That's, that's not what this is about. It's, it's harder to then redirect and somehow make them feel like that their problem, they, they should invest their energy. They've got invested in that problem over into this bigger thing. It is, you know, whether it's mindfulness or just sort of situational awareness, I think I, I have a, a vulgar term that I use. So I'll, I'll say it, you can edit it out. I, I have a fuck it bucket. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's just stuff I, like I'm, I'm not going to tackle that. And I don't care. It, That's uh, good. I, I unfortunately throw a lot of stuff that Courtney wants me to uh, <laughs> take care of into that bucket on any given day. But I think organizationally, people need to do it. There's just so much stuff that needs to be you know, pushed aside so that you can focus on the things that you've decided matter most. Doesn't mean that that's permanent. 
So what I like about this and this question, and maybe one more, Alan, we'll get you out of here because I know we could talk about this forever. I love that you talked about 168 hours in the week. Like that's so quantifiable. There's 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. If you work X number of hours, sleep Y number of hours to be healthy, then you have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. So time and energy management, let me throw this out. I'm gathering, this is what I like to do. I'm I'm creating a little mantra. Love it. There's a way to say it more eloquently than I'm about to say it, but but I think this is something a a peak performer like yourself and others that you've seen, Alan, would, would agree with, but let's test it. It's better to do a little bit well with data and measure your progress than trying to fill all the holes in your team or your culture. Because obviously you're going to have data to point at the holes. We're not performing here. We're not doing that. Do a little well, measure progress, and keep going. And then keep your priorities around what you're doing well, right? And instead of covering up all your weak spots, focus on your strength zone, right? Is that, do you think you can, an organization can live by that as much as an individual? Absolutely. And in fact, I actually think you said that very eloquently. I think you, you nailed that perfectly. You know, one of the oldest adages, and I, I tend to speak a lot through quotes. I've been a quote nerd ever since I was in high school with you. I had a yellow legal pad. And anytime uh, I heard a quote or read a quote or saw a quote, I would write it down. For some reason, you know, nice. words arranged in a very specific way can, can help help resonate. And one of the earliest ones I got, and, and I love this one because it's so basic, but I mean, this is really the key to performance in any area of life. And this is what can be backed up through data. This is when you get the data to combine with the human effect. And that is simply do more of what works, do less of what doesn't. I mean, think about that. There's not a single aspect of your life, personally or professionally, individually or organizationally, that that does not ring true. So how do you know what works? Well, use the data. I mean, make sure you're measuring the right things in the right way and do more of that. And then figure out the things that are undermining your ability to perform and or be fulfilled and start doing less of that. And and certainly it's not completely binary. There's some gray areas. There, there might be some things that at present are not serving you. But if you make some strategic tweaks, those actually could be moved to the other side. So I, I don't ever want it to appear that everything is completely black and white. But that is, I mean, I think a, a big red bow tie on this whole conversation yeah. on how you marry data to the human side is, is figure out what's working and find ways to amplify that, reinforce that and double down on that, find the things that aren't and stop doing them. I mean, you know, and, and the crazy part is I could walk outside my place right now and throw a rock and I would hit someone that is routinely doing something over <laughs> and over that they know doesn't work. I mean, they know it doesn't work, but they're still doing it because they've created a repeatable behavior and a habit. And even though on a conscious level, they know it doesn't serve them, it still provides them some level of comfort because there's a level of certainty and predictability to it. And uh, that's where we have to be willing to lean into some change, lean into some uncomfortableness to make some of these changes and just try to fill each of our buckets, uh, not the bucket that Andrew just mentioned, (laughs) but each of our buckets with as many of these positive habits as we can. But don't ever worry about perfection. I mean, that's Mm. the other thing is, you know, strive for progress, not for perfection. So if you feel like you've got some areas you can improve you're not going to have them all sewn up by next Tuesday. Uh, this is a lifelong journey, but can you make some progress, incremental progress, measurable progress, and do that, as you said so perfectly, doing a little bit, a lot will add up and, and that consistently matters. Yeah. I, I mean, I, by the way, like your 
your Queen's, you know, example. I mean, I think most organizations can probably chart their path towards significant improvement mm-hmm. through a small number of, of key metrics and sort of just points of execution. I mean, I certainly true of sales. I mean, yes. you know, and customer, you know, serving types of roles. I mean, there's not that many things that we need to do well and consistently and suddenly everything is just coming together. I, I love I love the idea of the simplicity of more of more of what <laughs> more of what works, less of, less of, of what, what does. does. Yeah, uh, well, it, think, that's think a mantra. About game, think think about the game of basketball since that's kind of been the red thread throughout all of this. Yeah, you know, I tell teams don't make the game any more complicated than it needs to be. On offense, we have one goal: to take the highest percentage shot possible. That's it. On defense, we also have one goal, to make them take the lowest percentage shot possible. If we can do those two things consistently, we will win the vast majority of our games. Like, So yeah. every single thing you do, it starts with, with kind of under that apex and say, okay, is setting this screen going to help get us a higher percentage shot? Is making this pass going to give us a higher percentage shot? Is having Allen in the game going to give us a higher percentage shot? And if the answer is no, then Allen should be on the bench. Yeah. You know, th- these are the types of decisions we need we need to make. So, yeah, I'm all for simplicity. I'm all for breaking it down and saying, here is our North Star. Here is our sales quota or our goal. Once we have that, you know, in stone, now what are the measurable stats or measurable behaviors or daily routines that will increase the chance we will reach that? And if you can keep that down to a handful, three to five, and those are the things that you measure and work on and focus on and emphasize repeatedly, you are giving yourself the best chance to reach that goal. It's when we get easily distracted by things that are taking us off course, that's kind of the issue. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Mark and I, you know, over a drink can talk about some of our practices in high school and how many of the yeah. things that we did during practice would not directly lead to increasing our chance of winning a basketball game. And and that's not to diminish our coach. I actually yeah. think we played with a pretty good coach. He's a good coach. But, you know, if 40% of our practice were doing drills that did not increase the chance of us winning the game, that's, you know, it's kind of a waste. It's kind of going through the motions. And we could have easily either shortened our practices, which I yeah. think we both would have appreciated, <laughs> or we could have filled that with drills and skills and moments that would have increased the chance of us being able to to win at the next game. So yeah, whether it's in basketball or business, we have to get out of our own way and not do things that make things more complicated than they need to be. For, for some reason, I think people think making things complicated is, is cool and it's sexy and it makes you look smart. But you know, complexity is the enemy of execution. If mm. you're going to make things complex, you're just getting in your own way and your people are going to be tripping over their own feet. Be as simple as possible, as clear as possible. Reinforce the things that are going well that you want to see more of. Coach up the things that aren't going so well. And and every organization on the planet will see a massive increase. That's great. So I think for this season in the Data Reveal podcast, we've been looking for not just the red thread. I like that analogy or like that that mental picture. This mantra, do more of what works, do less of what doesn't, as applied to this concept of generational change. And where do you simplify? How do you make a diverse, multi-generational workforce, diverse in every way, but diverse specifically because it's an acute problem? The president's management agenda highlighted that only 7% of the workforce is like Gen Z, Mm. and some 30 to 40% 
our baby boomers who are set to retire maybe entirely by 2030. Can you do all the jobs that the federal workforce needs to do if 30% are leaving and 77% are backfilling? That's a huge problem. You're not going to get all of those people backfilled. So you got to break down skills, capability enhancement, training people. In other words, the, the lessons of peak performance, right? And the lessons of simplification. So, Alan, you've set the stage for this, this upcoming season. So I thank you. Two final things for, for your parting words to, to pass to us. If you could coach the president, a cabinet secretary, a division chief, anybody in our mm-hmm. federal government, right? If you could sit them down and coach them or maybe tell a story of somebody that you've seen as a peak performer that really is a North Star, is that example of the right sort of player coach or the person who lived what they were, they made the right choices. I guess that's our theme. What would you coach any of those senior government leaders, some of whom are our customers, frankly? Some of those are people we we don't rub shoulders with them to say, look how powerful we are. We serve them. We help them use their data effectively, just as you've said. What are some inspirational lessons you've either learned or that you've observed others? You know, you've coached performance coach-wise. You've seen Steph Curry. You've seen Kevin Durant. You've seen Kobe. At the highest level, they're, you know, the hardest on themselves. But but they're also infectious. They make others better. How how could you maybe pass that on and coach up some of the people who lead our government? Well, the first thing I would lean into, we've, we've already touched on, would be having a, the goal of being much more inclusive instead of divisive mm. and, and having a natural curiosity and fascination to say that for most things in the world, there's not one way to do them, that a variety of perspectives and angles and vantage points can give you the type of information you need to, to actually create the best resolution possible. Uh, so, you know, lean in with that fascination, lean in with respect. Don't approach every conversation as it's me versus you. There has to be a winner. There has to be a loser. Uh, don't lean into every conversation with what I believe is right. Therefore, what you believe is wrong, because that's not going to, to move, you know, move us any further to where right. we're all trying to get. Instead, highlight the things that do unite us. I mean, from a humanitarian standpoint, we have so much more in common, no matter which side yeah. of the aisle you're on, no matter your your religious beliefs or anything in between, we have so much more in common than we do have things that are different. But but we tend to highlight the differences because that which gets that's gets the clicks. Yeah. The other thing that I would lean towards, you know, and this is the lesson I learned directly from Kobe Bryant, and we've already talked about this in many of our, our little side conversations here. And that is the best never get bored with the basics. Hmm. The best have a profound respect and appreciation for the fundamentals and they work towards mastery of them during the unseen hours. So whatever you're trying to get, whatever area of life you're trying to master, whether it's a personal relationship with your spouse or children, it's your specific work vocation, figure out what are the fundamental building blocks of being good in this specific area and how can I work on those every single day? How can I refine my skills in those specific areas. And then lastly, and this is something I've learned from all of those players that you just mentioned, earn your confidence through repetition during the unseen hours and be confident in what you do, but brush that with a massive stroke of humility Mm. where you're always open to feedback, you're always open to someone's coaching, uh, and you always know that no matter how good you are, you can still get better. And if you can blend uh, uh, confidence and humility to that masterful of a degree, um, then then you're on the, the the path to continual improvement. And 
that combined with mastering the basics and trying to be inclusive with everyone that has something that they can share that can actually fill your bucket, you'll be on the way. And, and I realized, I mean, everything I just shared, I mean, that no one's head's exploding. This stuff yeah. is incredibly basic stuff. Now, it's not easy to implement. Yeah, that's right. You know, there is a difference between basic and easy. People use those words interchangeably, but they're not synonyms. It's good. What it takes to be a peak performer in any area of life is incredibly basic, but it's certainly not easy. That's why there's very few really high performers. So none of this stuff is easy. So just lean into it knowing that this journey is going to be challenging. There's going to be plenty of adversity. There's going to be plenty of bumps in the road. There's going to be plenty of people that are going to test my patience, but I'm the one that's in control to how I respond to all of that. And I'm going to choose responses that move me and my team forward. Wonderful. Alan Stein, couldn't ask for a better kickoff to this season. Thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate your time and we look forward to talking again soon. Likewise, this was so much fun. Thank you all. Thanks, Alan. Thank you.